Welcome to All Things Photonics, a podcast about the physical science of light driving scientific innovation in the 21st century. I'm Joel Williams, Associate Editor at Photonics Media. Join us as we explore the latest trends in optics, lasers, microscopy, and spectroscopy. Each episode, you'll hear from leading voices from across the photonics landscape, brought to you by Photonics Media. The path toward device commercialization is one of the most widely traveled in optics and photonics. In 2023, the point-of-care technologies on which many of these devices rely are central to themes that are larger than the road to commercialization. The ability to assess and then treat cardiovascular disease rapidly and at the point of care is one example of an endeavor that would go a long way in reducing rates of morbidity and mortality on a global scale. The precise advanced technologies and health systems for underserved populations, or Paths Up initiative, aims to integrate engineering research and education with technological innovation to transform national prosperity, health, and security. The NSF-funded academia and research collaboration also extends into industry to ensure that positive R&D outcomes ascend into use in the wider community. In our upcoming panel discussion, host Jake Saltzman is joined by three key players on a portion of Paths Up supported work that involves the development of a surface-enhanced Raman spectroscopy technology that targets the detection of core biomarkers at the point of care. In our conversation, you'll hear from leading players on the effort at all three levels of the value chain. First, and the first voice you'll hear, is Samuel Mabbitt, assistant professor in the Texas A&M Department of Biomedical Engineering. Mabbitt's charge in the Paths Up work that guides our discussion involves the development and implementation of a spectroscopic platform that is portable and, as it turns out, multimodal for point-of-care optical biosensing applications. Cyril Solomon, then a PhD candidate under Mabbitt in the Texas A&M Biomedical Optics Lab, served as the driver of the project. In fact, it was the platform and topic for his dissertation, a point-of-care spectroscopy platform for multimodal monitoring of cardiovascular biomarkers. Fluorescence techniques and colorimetry were among the mechanisms the early stages of the work considered. Under Solomon's lead, the successful project ultimately yielded a surface-enhanced Raman spectroscopy-driven platform to achieve the sensitivity and robustness necessary for biomarker detection at the point of care. Michael Matthews, Vice President of the Spectroscopy Division at Wasatch Photonics, is the critical link to industry. His contributions to the Texas A&M work throughout the technology development stage plays a critical role in moving the science onto the aforementioned path toward commercialization. The chance to collaborate throughout the life cycle of the particular thrust of the Paths Up project isn't necessarily unique, Matthews said but it is key to a best-case outcome. The final episode of All Things Photonics' seventh season with the Paths Up collaborators is up next. So Paths Up is an acronym for Precise Advanced Technologies in Health Systems for Underserved Populations. It's an engineering research center funded by the NSF that was established in 2017. So the FASO PRC team is led by Texas A&M University with partners from UCLA, Rice University and Florida International. The specific vision of um, our ERC, the PASO PRC, is to change the paradigm for health of underserved populations by developing revolutionary and cost-effective technologies and systems at the point of care. 
So the initial pass-up technologies and systems are designed to help with chronic diseases, particularly diabetes and cardiovascular diseases, which are the global leading causes of morbidity and mortality. Really, we have kind of two missions there. One is a research-focused mission, and the other one is a, a workforce development mission. The research focus is to engineer these transformative technologies to improve healthcare um, costs and accessibility within underserved populations. It's generally split into two different sections. We have uh, lab on your palm um, technologies and we have lab on your wrist technologies. And really they're used to monitor these key biomarkers, biochemical, biophysical and behavioral uh, markers of chronic disease at the point of care. That research is then expanded, so we have uh, different thrusts, which the research is segmented into. So thrust one is really about uh, biochip and sensor development. Thrust two is mobile computational imaging and spectroscopy systems. And three is these wearable sensors and imaging technologies. And then four is the remote uh, biobehavioral interference and patient response. And then on the flip side, what we also do is the workforce uh, development. And the real bit of that is really to recruit and educate a diverse group of students and engineers who are ready to lead these uh, enabling technologies and the development of those technologies in the future to improve the health of these underserved communities. Okay, so thank you very much. So we have a broad and comprehensive context to guide us through our episode today uh, that, Sam, you've just provided Let's talk about Texas A&M and Wasatch Photonics. The target mission of the Texas A&M Wasatch Photonics collaboration, working within the framework of the Paths Up initiative, or under the umbrella of the Paths Up initiative, can you tell us what were the key drivers for that particular effort? And, and I want to focus on both uh, needs of a healthcare community, but also in terms of the vast possibilities of instrument design and development. Yeah, so um, just to give you a little bit of an a, a overview of where this fits in, I suppose it, it fits in within Thrust ones and thrust, uh, thrust 1 and Thrust 2. So we're developing lots of different types of assays towards these chronic diseases. Um, that falls within Thrust 1, so we're developing the different transduction elements, as we call them, to generate signal. And then the development of the devices or the reader systems really comes under um, thrust two, which is this mobile computational imaging and spectroscopy systems thrust. And the idea is that when we develop an assay, we need to be able to read the signal output. And that's where the collaboration comes in here because we develop those tests working with industry groups like uh, Wasatch and uh, working with students like Cyril, who goes and works with Wasatch, is really useful because they can design those systems that allow us to get information back from our tests. As it relates to cardiology or maybe cardiac healthcare is a better way of phrasing this, the notion of portable and handheld instrumentation, and we'll get into this further as the conversation goes on, how established is that connection? Because we hear a lot about um, devices and we certainly hear a lot about cardio care but that bridge i guess i'm i'm asking how fortified is that connection yeah it's it's pretty strong i mean we know that we can ha we have these handheld ecg monitors that are on the market we have portable defibrillators uh, portable ultrasound devices and we even have now the wearable heart monitors which are incorporated into smart watches although there is some medical practicalities that have to get in to make some kind of diagnostics uh, with those and, you know, hurdles to overcome to make the diagnostics, then 
Um, you know, it's it, it's well well established, and even within what we're doing, there are some platforms which can be incorporated into laboratory type settings that may be also portable for looking at specific biomarkers to do with cardiovascular disease and diabetes as a whole. The main aim for us, though, really, is to make those more affordable and more accessible. So we kind of uh, diverge from maybe what might be already there to develop new technologies. So the initial goal of, of this particular work was always a point-of-care platform, and the benefits of a point-of-care platform are, are somewhat obvious, I suppose. It's right there in the name, point-of-care. And also when you're talking about um, underserved communities, there are benefits that way too. Uh, and, and Cyril, this is for you as the researcher sort of stirring this drink. At what point does research and investigation into a diagnostics platform in the lab begin to warrant or necessitate consideration of extending the work um, beyond just that setting and into a point of care? Yeah, so like you kind of briefly touched on already, we kind of already knew that the end goal for this, you know, Envision product would be an underserved community. So a lot of the initial work that we did in, you know, designing experiments and thinking about the, you know, ideation for this project was really focused on getting to the point of care at the start point. Uh, so for us, you know, there's still going to be, you know, a barrier, right, to overcome as a new PhD student, learning all the fundamentals for uh, optics and spectroscopy backgrounds. Um, you know, all of those come into effect as, you know, just a product of being a student. Um, so, you know, I really took my research to a certain extent where, you know, I had a working prototype that was on the bench top, and I got to a point where I was basically like, How, where do I go from here? You know, we really know that we want to get to something that's handheld, you know, I've tried to pick low-cost components and do all these things to kind of miniaturize and make the system as cheap as I could, but I couldn't really jump over that next hurdle, right, of really bringing it to, you know, a truly uh, handheld point-of-care device. Uh, so that's why I had the privilege, again, of meeting Michael from Wasatch Photonics with them being on our industry advisory board um, and got to talk to him at one of our annual meetings. Um, and we kind of set up a connection to talk about, you know, what technologies that they have that can be helped to kind of bridge that gap for us and kind of bring that device from the laboratory into the hands of the underserved community. And Michael, I, I suppose this is as good a chance as any to bring you in. We've mentioned a couple things here. One, the development of a device. And anytime you're developing a device, companies develop the device, there's an interest there. You know, even workforce development, the, the interest of such a thing to a company like a Wasatch, sort of speak for themselves. But I want to hear it in your words. What was Wasatch's interest in involving itself with this work? I mean, for, for our part, we see a tremendous uh, movement in the industry, particularly in this healthcare industry, to looking at Raman and other spectroscopy-based techniques to push diagnostics as close to the end user as possible. And we see that as a really underserved area from an instrumentation point of view. If you look at a lot of Raman technology and kind of the practical barriers and hurdles to getting the type of work that Cyril and Sam are doing out into a real-world situation, just you don't have equipment out there that is a cost and a performance and a form factor that really makes that possible. And you look at what Wasatch and our technology base is really centered on, and it's all about making, in particular, Raman spectroscopy mutation smaller, more powerful, more accessible, easier to use. So there's a complete overlap in what we're trying to do from an instrument point of view and the need that Cyril just mentioned of partnering with an industrial partner to get it that into the, into the real world. But really beyond it all, if we can do it, it's an interesting, you know, we're all kind of techno geeks. We all love the, the, the ideas. But at the end of the day, I mean, there is, there's, there's truly a need in the world. 
for this type of instrumentation just doesn't exist yet. And so for us to be able to engage in this with the potential of actually developing a platform that can serve and be released and, and, and make this finally help with that last hump, that, that's really exciting. Should mention that we're talking about um, extremely high sensitivity uh, Raman measurements. It yields a form factor that's conducive to the, the point of care applications of which we speak. And we're also talking about optical biomarkers in any case. The word I meant to say is optimal. Uh, and Sam, I'll ask you, how do we determine the optimal biomarkers to be targeted for any application, um, for this one in particular? And, and as a follow-up to that, um, what technologies are needed to detect those targets? Yeah, it's a good question and quite a, a large <laughs> question to yeah. deal with all the answers. But where we really start, I suppose, is clinical validation of some of these biomarkers. We have to know that the biomarkers that we are trying to target do affect the disease in some way or allow us to either diagnose or predict the course of those diseases over time. That's the kind of starting place. That involves a lot of collaborative work. So when we work with clinicians or people that are experiencing the fundamental biology of these systems, we can then start to build a picture of how we would develop um, diagnostic tests for those things. But it really depends on lots of different types of parameters. So what concentrations we expect physiologically what we expect in you know, patients with particular diseases or illnesses and how that's going to change over time. So there is a lot of work that actually goes into establishing these things, you know, and we really actually start to look at established markers, which might have quite a lot of literature and uh, information regarding the clinical aspects. But we also do concentrate on looking at some of the emerging biomarkers as well to see if Maybe there is a future in being able to target those and they might give us a little bit more of a better diagnostic or kind of prognostic accuracy in the long run. So we do focus on both sides of things. Um, it's just a case of trying to choose where you put your time and effort and wisely go down those different paths. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as for technologies, again, it really depends on how sensitive we want to go. And it depends on what the end user really wants um, out of that system. But we spoke here about using Raman. So one of the technologies that we work on is a technique called service-enhanced Raman, where we can get really unique ultra-sensitive signals from whatever we're trying to detect. But then we can also go for colorimetry, which is more akin to what you see with the portable kind of COVID-type tests. So you, you see a color if it's positive and then nothing if, if it's a negative test and then we can do things such as electrochemical and then other specialties like fluorescence as well to detect those different markers too and uh, we have a range of different ways to do it it just depends on um, what the end application is and uh, which one is most feasible for the diagnostic um, assay that we want to develop since you brought it up, I, I just want to ask about SIRS, Service Enhanced Raman Scattering Spectroscopy. The advantages of that technique, certainly there are some, but for this application, what drew you to SIRS or maybe what drew SIRS to you? Yeah, I mean, I've been working in the area of Service Enhanced Raman for some time during my PhD into my postdoc. Uh, there is certain elements which are really interesting because they use a lot of nanomaterials. I'm a chemist by trade, so being able to synthesize those nanoparticles reproducibly and, you know, with 
a good SERS activity is certainly a challenge and something that I've taken in with my own research to develop. Um, but the idea really is that if you take a molecule of interest and you bring it into close proximity to a nanoparticle, then what you generally create is a much higher and more intense Raman signal at the endpoint, which then means we can change it into that we can adopt it within these diagnostic tests to give us a much lower ability to detect biomarkers at much lower concentrations. Text on this a bit and turn it back to Cyril. The impetus to, to move towards commercialization. Suppose perhaps anytime there's a device involved, commercialization is a logical next step in many ways. But you're doing this work as part of your your education, right? You're, this is this project has a particular focus for you. When did the the impetus emerge to launch this work beyond um, R and D and the um, development of a device and move it towards commercialization? Yeah, so uh, like I touched on a little bit, uh, you know, the goal of Pat's Up really is to make a real-world impact. You know, a lot of the research that happens at the university kind of stops at that level, right? Uh, it kind of stops at the lab bench top and doesn't really get translated into, you know, a commercial device. Uh, but we knew always with Pat's Up, the goal was to, again, make this impact. So, you know, I had gotten to a point in my research where, you know, I had this bench top device and it was as cheap and as compact as I could possibly make it. You know, the next logical step for us was to really look around, right? We know that there's commercial companies that sell handheld Raman spectrometers. So what are they doing that we're not able to do? And what can we leverage from those companies that can help us kind of bridge that gap, right, from the bench top to an actual commercial device? And that's where I think, again, the partnership with Wasatch has been fundamental, right, in helping us bridge that gap and using their technology and you know, them taking a risk with us, right, to try something new that, that we were approaching in this R&D because there is still, a, you know, an aspect of something novel in the way that we wanted to do the spectroscopy technique that they could also help us with, right? So it was still, you know, falls in line and kind of walks the barrier between, you know, this R&D research in the academic realm uh, with a little bit more focus, I think, of what is a truly a, a potential pathway, right, to commercialization. What could that actually look like if we really wanted to push this thing from the lab to the real world? And again, I think that Pat's Up, again, is another unique opportunity that lets graduate students take part in internships, you know, during their PhD, which is not necessarily a very common thing that people get to do. Um, so again, I'm grateful for Pat's Up being supportive of that initiative and really trying to help us kind of push that envelope and kind of explore things outside of the realm of just pure R&D that's focused on your academic development. I, I want to talk about this this notion of productization and the product cycle um, as it relates to uh, the device yielded through this collaboration. I'll, I'll start with you, Michael, first. You know, I suppose, well, maybe I shouldn't um, suppose. Is it, let me ask you this first, is it unique or, or even rare to come into a um, project such as this one where you're so familiar with the application and the people involved in making the work happen, um, you know, is that rare or unique for you? Uh, for us, it's part of uh, daily business. Wasatch Photonics is very much a hardware-focused company. We really are heavily dedicated to advancing what the, the hardware can do, the optical performance of a system and so on, but something that we don't do ourselves we don't actually develop end applications. All of our customers want from us a data stream. You know, at the end of the day, on a Raman spectra, it's the squiggly line. And what they do with it to us, we, we love to see the uh, the practical application of it, but it's what they do with that data that really makes an answer at the end of the day and something that's that's impactful. So we, we very much appro approach all of our customer relationships as partnerships. 
where we can focus on the hardware, customer can focus on the assay and the application development, and together we can create a solution. You know, there's a lot of science that goes on into actually pulling out an answer from this this information, and that requires a certain skill set in the kind of biomedical, bioanalytics, biochemical kind of realms. So if we can provide them the tools where they don't have to worry about the hardware, then it just allows them to focus on what they do best. So productization in this case, right, we're talking about an instrument and we're also talking about the assay, right? The assay. We have two different um, things and we don't want them to be overly reliant on one another. The product cycle. Can you just outline us for us, Michael? What does, um, you know, moving from point A to point B to point commercial, what does that look like in a in an optimal use case? I think in the in the realm of, of ramen, it's still a little bit being figured out. There aren't really any FDA-approved ramen-based assays out there, although there are a tremendous number of them across a broad breadth of potential targets that are being developed and in various states of trial and development. So I think there is a little bit of uncertainty as to what it will take to get past that final hurdle and actually get some of these devices and some of these assays into the back of an ambulance or into a, a doctor's office. But there is such a defined need that we know it's it's going to happen. So what what we look at, first off, I think the assay and the instrument, these can be, they can be developed completely separate. To a certain extent, any Raman instrument can read serials, SARES markers. And to a certain extent, our instrument can read any Raman-based assay appropriate and designed for appropriate wavelength. So these are not dependent on each other in terms of the development. However, the earlier in the development cycle that you start thinking about this as a whole system, you have to have the assay, you have to have the instrument, you also have to have a workflow. You have to have all of that working together if you actually want to get it into the hands of somebody in the real world who's using this. And the earlier you start to think about that, the more successful you're going to be. I suppose I have the same question for you, Sam, but on on the research side, when you're thinking about productization or, or moving towards uh, making a commercial push, can you just walk us through the links in the chain there that you're trying to address? Yeah, I mean, I, I can tell you one of the, the main issues that we face, certainly from the assay development side, is that we know that sensitivity is there. We have a range of techniques that we can pick from in order to get the um, sensitivity where we need it. We can also switch out different elements from the recognition side and the assay side to cause amplification and we can, we can get much, again, much lower sensitivities. The main issue that arises, especially with some techniques, is the reproducibility of that signal, right? And so for any diagnostic test, it has to be uh, effectively quality control to the point that we know that every single time it should produce this type of signal. And that is kind of one of the hurdles that we need to overcome. So with the Raman, as Michael has explained, is that they perform the same way every single time, right? They're great. It's a piece of excellent hardware that will measure the signal from our assays. The main thing is we have to try and get that reproducibility on point and we have to guarantee that. And that, and that's a long, that's a lot of stages we have to go through, right? So we do just normal kind of sample testing in the lab where we might do it in aqueous solutions or buffers. Then we'll progress to more complex solutions to the point then we're actually probably doing human samples, but then we have to broaden those studies and make sure that we get 
a good range of the population for those things. So it's a long development cycle to, to get to that point. Um, but I think, you know, we, we're getting to the stage now where we know a lot about our systems. We know how to control the systems. So hopefully, um, we're going to be able to start to see, hopefully in the future, these, um, SERS based diagnostic systems where we've got the assays and we twin them with the, you know, excellent instrumentation that WhatsApp develops for market use and commercial use. Well, it occurs to me that all of this work and, and all work period for the last handful of years is occurring against the backdrop of a um, global pandemic. And we're talking about biophotonics, and it's easy enough to make that connection. Um, I, you know, I'm asking, I'll, I guess I'll ask Cyril, you first. I mean, you're leading this effort against that backdrop. Is that weighing on you at all in the back of your mind? And even though that was not so much a consideration to launch the work, um, the world we live in is the world we live in, right? And we're, we're designing something and, and theorizing something to make the world a better place. I mean, is that registering at all? Yeah, I think it's something that we're definitely, you know, thinking about. And I think really for us, it's a big motivator, right? We saw the impact that a lot of these clinical devices had immediately that kind of had to be expedited, right? We needed tests rapidly, right, for COVID-19, and a lot of those tests came out pretty quickly. Uh, but you also saw there was a lot of questions, right, that arose with reliability and repeatability even in that on that landscape. So for us, you know, we kind of take in all of these inputs, and they kind of feed into our, you know, workflow and how we're trying to design our experimentation. And again, at the end of the day, really, we want, you know, reproducibility, repeatability in a lot of these assays, um, and that's really the guiding principle, I think, that is is going to kind of remain uh, consistent as you talk about anything in the life science field. So, you know, the pandemic and, and portable handheld diagnostics are, are always going to be linked together. Um, and that's a piece of, of this work. A lot of people have talked about it, but I don't know how many have been tasked with designing such an instrument. Um, Sam, Michael, the three of you um, have. Just in terms of test development, how does that occur when you're designing a handheld device? Uh, I'm not sure that I know the answer. So from the assay side, it depends on what medium that you want that test to take place in. So we do things in solution-based assays, and then we'll take them through onto what we call fluidic-based assays or common lateral flow-based platforms that you see for COVID-19 that we just um, spoke about. So it really depends on what platform we want to adopt. It's, and I'll tell you, it's 99% of the time, it's optimization of everything. We need to try and optimize different concentrations of recognition elements, our transduction elements, if the nanoparticles, if the different dyes. We need to get all of those on point so it works within the physiological parameters of what we should expect um, when we come to um, sampling, you know, real humans and uh, patients in the field. So, if you ask any of my students, they say pretty much they're going to be doing optimization of all these parameters, benchmarking it, validating the results, and then going back, changing a few things going forward. So it's kind of a circular-based system of development. There's a lot of back and forth within it. So like I said before, once we decide on the biomarkers, we can decide on the assays. As assays will be decided on how sensitive we want to go. And uh, that's based on the information that we have. But, you know, the whole development phase really is this uh, back and forth of optimization there. So it's a lot of legwork, I would say, <laughs> to, 
it's certainly, you know, from my my background of being in the lab, I'm not in the lab so often now, but certainly from a, a student's aspect of being in the lab, there is a lot of optimization back and forth, making buffers and retesting these things. So it's a very involved process, I probably <laughs> should say, to apply it. And Michael, I have the same question to you. Let's just uh, take it downstream and focus on the instrument. You know, I think uh, in terms of the initiation of test development, I've, I've been a part of various consortiums, various partnerships, and I see there's a push and a pull situation. Now, my interpretation of the question, we have, even with Paths Up, there's a medical advisory board. They'll talk about the needs and the unmet needs that are out in the, the world and say, can you help us with this? It would be so much more beneficial if you know, we pick up a, a patient who's had a heart attack and right there in the ambulance, we can get one or two extra readings to to start their diagnosis and start their medical history just that much earlier. That would help us with the treatment to start the proper course of treatment to make sure that we're on track and can gauge progress of the patient. And then the researchers will start on that. On the other side, you have researchers who are developing things in a lab. You know, this is a new capability. What could we do with it? But in all cases, there's a there's a little bit of a pathway. I tend to think about the fact that you have to get the science, the engineering, and the business case all to work together. So there's a little bit of this, the scientists are proving what might be possible, the engineering aspect of it, the optimization that Sam was talking about, that's saying, okay, it's possible, can we make it practical? And then you also have a business world out there that says, okay, it's great that you can do this, but is anybody going to pay for it? You know, is, is there codes that we can bill against in the medical world, or is there foundations that will help us to get this technology to underserved populations. What is the business case? Possible, practical, and at the end of the day, it has to be profitable for, for somebody. And that is very much a loop that Sam mentioned is a little bit of a continuous effort of optimization to make it work a little bit better, to make it a little bit more effective, to make it a little bit more cost attractive. Cyril, you know, this, you've, you've now entered industry, settled in nicely. Michael, you're in industry and Sam is continuing to push a steady stream uh, of those interested in working in industry through in that direction. Where are we now, um, on the Paths Up initiative? I know we mentioned thrusts earlier. Is that the, uh, the best gauge to determine where we are now on the project? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, we've just been renewed. So we've uh, gone over that, um, halfway mark now. We're getting some interesting developments coming out and different collaborations, um, certainly collaborations between the different thrusts as well. As I say, this is thrust one and two, but, you know, there's developments between three and four. Um, but the, the main thing is we're starting to build a much more comprehensive picture of where we need to be. And that's important because we work with industrial partners. We have board members from various different industries that give us feedback. And really, that's important because it governs the direction that we take for the next few years. So we are progressing at a really good rate, really exciting research. And I'd say really exciting collaborations come out. Uh, and it's just getting more directed now towards some of the platforms that maybe in the future are going to be commercialized or hopefully are going to be commercialized. For all three of you, uh, can you get into what's forthcoming, what we can expect to, uh, to hear about? Say we do this podcast again in 12 months, uh, what might we be talking about? It's a great question. All <laughs> of us are thinking now, our boss is going to listen to this, let's see here. What are we signing ourselves <laughs> yeah, up to? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, even if we focus here on the technologies, are there certain technology areas 
um, that have emerged as drivers saying, and we don't even necessarily have the application, but we have this robust technology. Surely there is a solution out there. We just have to find a way to, to work it in. I mean, is that where we are now? I think that you'll, you'll certainly see some of that. I mean, we're, we're very happy to be part of the Up initiative. I can tell you there are many other people in the world that have uh, ramen and, in particular, SARES-based assays that are going through various states of development. Some of those are further along in the trials than, than others. But uh, if we don't see a major headline in the next year from one or more of those SARES-based assays kind of reaching a hurdle and actually getting closer to an end market, I'd be rather shocked if that doesn't happen, just based on what I see of where people are, the sheer number of these things that are under test. You know, this is something that is going to happen. As I said earlier, I think right now there's not a history of ramen-based, SARS-based techniques actually getting into an end end market. I see a little bit of a floodgate potential on this. As soon as one or more of these assays is out there, then there's a template for others and a more defined pathway. You know it will be successful. I think it's going to drive a lot of demand. So I I do foresee in the next year some some major uh, movements in this regard. And if you ask me on the three to five year horizon, I think ramen in particular is going to be a very exciting place to be in the biomedical assay and, and uh, diagnostics world. I can tell you we, we've got all kinds of exciting things on the, on the hardware side. One of the things you might have picked up on all this is a single instrument, a ramen reader can actually evaluate many different type of assays. And in fact, the, the hardware that we're using here is not fundamentally different than what is utilized in security and defense applications and, and such that's already out there. It's kind of a new form factor. We often talk about the fact that our benches are agnostic of what they're looking at, but certainly we, we can package that technology in a way that's very, very attractive for the biomedical industry. And I think you'll, you'll see some, some movement and some exciting happenings in that regard as well. For my part, without uh, hopefully getting myself into too much trouble with the uh, signing up for, for tasks for my boss, I would say <laughs> I'm very excited to see what's going to say that. And I think we'll have some, some renewed things to share on our side as well. You mentioned the, the difficulty brought on by the notion of reproducibility on the assay side. And then on the hardware side, there are a whole um, additional slew of challenges. And some challenges, you know, they're agnostic. They apply to all biomedical research. Can I ask the three of you what the hardest part of this endeavor has been? I think from a, a SERS standpoint, if we're talking about that just as a technique for the development, it really is trying to make sure that we get the same signal every time from our particles. And I think from our research standpoint, that's really took us back right to the fundamentals of understanding how we fabricate those particles and how we can control the conditions for that fabrication in order to get a better product at the end. I think now we're at that point, and I, I echo what Michael says, I think we're at that point now where we're starting to, not that we didn't understand before, but we're starting to control those particles and the properties of those particles much better. And I think now we're, we're getting to the point where we are starting to see that reproducibility and we are starting to see the power of SERS and that could bring to the field diagnostics and portable healthcare. One of the things that we, again, we took some with was COVID-19 going through the literature that was published during, during COVID-19, especially to do with SERS-based biosensing and portable platforms. It is crazy the diversity that's come out of that. 
just for detecting SARS-CoV-2. Different ways that people have adapted these, you know, some of the devices that are even analyzed, Raman to analyze breath. And that has shown significant predictive diagnostic results, sensitivity and specificity. So we're really diversifying now. And as much as you know, obviously COVID-19, you know, was not, it was not great in any capacity, but I think from a, you know, acceleration of science point, certainly within the SERS world, we've seen the increase in that diversity and there's a definite need there. And that's allowed us to go back to the fundamentals that will hopefully result in these you know, nice reproducible testing formats that could revolutionize how we do diagnostics in the future. I'll hear from all three of you on this as as we close. uh, Core takeaways, and I do want to hear from all three of you because you sort of represent the thought and leadership, um, each with a different role to play um, in this pursuit. Um, And we'll start with Sarah. I just want to get the, uh, you know, what when this is, as much as a bow can be put on this work, What's the the taste that you're going to be left with? Yeah, so I, uh, again, I feel like I was in a really unique situation uh, where I got to do a lot of the hardware and also a lot of this, you know, chemistry and assay development background. So I really got to dip my toes into both sides of the pond and, you know, really get a deeper understanding of both sides, which I think is pretty unique, being as a lot of, you know, PhD research is very focused on a very specific task. I kind of got the opposite where, uh, you know, it's still a very specific research area, but I got to do both sides of the product. And for me, I think I obviously learned a lot more doing that approach, uh, but also, you know, uh, I had to face a lot more hurdles uh, in that approach because you uh, kind of learn, right, how are these two two items kind of depend on each other. Uh, and I've kind of had to, you know, start from scratch on the fundamentals on both sides and kind of build it up. And I feel like, you know, where I'm at at the end of my Ph.D., uh, you know, finally have a handheld device that can do what we initially had anticipated to do and an assay that performs well enough for, uh, you know, uh, my understanding of developing assays uh, and partnering those two, two things together, I think, to uh, kind of develop this platform technology that can really make a large impact. You know, I feel like uh, it's been a thumbs up and great experience all around for my time. Michael. Oh, this is this is for me the some of the most exciting things I work on. I mean, I came to a, a little bit of a smaller company with an interesting technology, with the, the goal and the hope of making an impact on the world, a positive change. You know, and and any time that you are working as part of a project has this this altruistic bent to it. The idea that you can actually help somebody live a better life—that's just something that you can feel really good about at the end of the day. And I can see where this is going both on individual project with paths up, but also just SARS based assays in general. And I know this is going to have a very positive impact on the world. And for us to be in the driver's seat of that to help to be enabling that change, yeah, there's no better feeling. And this is yeah, this is what gets me up in the morning. This is this is what I really love to do and I, I get very excited by it. And then we'll turn it to Sam. Yeah, I think I think, you know, I obviously I'm working in a biomedical engineering department. I think most biomedical engineers want to make some difference. They want to make some difference to healthcare as a whole. And there is a you know, again that that's that's why we get up right. We get up in the morning to try and make that difference to develop these new techniques and push them through as hard as it can be. And Cyril can be a testament, right? PhD is a can be a, a task in. It's hard to say the least to go through, 
but being able to mentor, you know, great students like Cyril and work with them and see those progress over time as a project progresses. And then, you know, you bring in collaborative um, opportunities, whether it's in industry or um, other researchers. And again, you get to see how things progress even further. I think, you know, it's, it's very exciting from a, a lot of different areas. But I would say, you know, the thing that really is key to take away is that by mentoring students like Cyril, they are the future. They're going to provide these new technologies to the market. They're going to drive these things. Working with companies collaboratively allows us to push on um, our stuff. So really, it's that whole ecosystem of working together and developing things it's so exciting. I still, I love it now when we see a PhD student get some great results. You can see that look in their eye, right? We're all kind of geeky in our own way, right? We all love <laughs> science and engineering, but that real joy of, you know, seeing them get something out of it is, uh, you know, again, it's really fulfilling for those things. But I think here, that collaborative um, setup is driving this forward. So, you know, I think it's the best thing ever to collaborate and to mentor these students in that way. Well, to all three of you, great work. Thanks so much for, for articulating it here to us, and good luck on uh, all that is to come. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, right. Thank you very much. That concludes this week's episode of All Things Photonics. Thank you to our engineer, Alan Shepard, and to our news editor, Jake Saltzman, as well as to this week's sponsors. Our featured music is courtesy of betterwithmusic.com, most of all, thank you, our listeners. As always, you can share your thoughts, pitch us ideas, and let us know how we're doing. You can reach us at allthingsphotonics.com. All Things Photonics is available on all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, as well as on our website, photonics.com.